Let us turn now to the book of the Revelation, chapter 3, and we read from the verse 14 to the verse 22, the book of the Revelation, chapter chapter 3, verse 14 to the verse 22. The book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14 to the verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. Let us come and hear God's word together. The Lord help us. The Lord grant his his spirit that we may understand and apply his word this night. This is God's word. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not, that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyself, that thou mayest see, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Amen. This is God's word. May the Lord seal his word to our hearts and minds. May the Lord write it large upon our hearts here tonight. May the Lord teach it to us and apply to our needful case. Let us pray. Let us come before our gracious God. Well, dear congregation, I now ask you to please turn your prayerful attention once again to the words that I read to you earlier in your hearing, the book of the Revelation, or the Revelation of Jesus Christ, as we read in verse 1 of chapter 1, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. We arrive this evening in chapter 3, and uh, the church there at Laodicea, verse 14 to the verse 22. In our consecutive studies, we now come to this final church, the seventh church. And uh, it's vital that, again, the Lord speak to us each, 
And again, I don't want to weary you, but just again setting forth the important principles of interpretation that we need to apply once again as we come to this last church. Of course, as we know and as we've said every time, that the book of Revelation is full of symbol, symbolism. Seven, that number appears very frequently, almost in every chapter of this book. It symbolizes whole, it symbolizes complete. And although there are seven churches that are written to, and certainly there were more in these days, there was also the the Philippian church, we can think of the church in Rome, there were other churches around, but the number here is significant. These churches, again, if you were to draw a line from one to the other, you would come full circle. Again, it's emphasizing the whole church. These specific letters, though, were written to real historical churches. Nonetheless, they are representative of churches throughout the ages, throughout, we could say, the last days, the gospel age. They are representative of all true churches. Now, there were these individual problems taking place in these churches, but from time to time, any church can be like, say, the church at Ephesus or the church at Thyatira or even Laodicea, depending on the spiritual state of the church. So, largely symbolic. Seven is frequent in this book. It's a predominant symbol. The Lamb has seven eyes. There are seven trumpets, seven horns. The book, as you know, has seven cycles. We are now coming to the close of the first cycle. The first cycle is what? It is Christ, chapter 1, walking amidst his churches, the lampstands. Then at the close of the first cycle, chapter 4, we have Christ in heaven. He's both in heaven and he's amongst his church. Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. But there we see him in chapter 4, on his throne, governing and loosening the seals. He is over all things. He reigns, Psalm 110, verses 1 to 3, until he makes all his enemies his footstool. He has accomplished his work here upon earth, but now he reigns in heaven, and he is coming again, and he will usher in that new heavens and that new earth. The last epoch is due to take place. He has already said to the last church that we studied last week, the church there, how, notice in the verse 11, he says, I come quickly. There to the church, he says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that which is fast, which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And it's interesting, many of the commentators say, he stands here at this church at the door. And many have said, this could be true, we do not know. It's uh, quite possible he stands at the door. He's ready to come. The church, it is suggested by some, at Laodicea may well represent the state of the church, by and large, just before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what he says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, how many shall wax cold 
even in the last days. He says, Behold, iniquity shall abound, and the love of the many shall wax cold. But he that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. And it's quite possible, as some suggest, Herman Huxma says, that this depicts the church just before the coming of the Son of Man. Remember what he said, shall he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man cometh, will he find it? Well, there may be times that even a church has become, as it were, lukewarm, as we see here. So these things depict the state of the churches, and even quite possibly here, the general state of the church up until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see that relevance this evening. Again, as we said regarding these cycles, seven cycles through the book of the Revelation, they're synchronous, they're all giving us views of things happening, pertaining up until the final coming of the Lord Jesus. And here we have the view from heaven, or at least from Christ's perspective, of the church. He who is the true and faithful witness. You know, often we... We, um, we have a wrong assessment of ourselves. And this was true of the church at Laodicea. They thought they were rich. But the Lord says, you're poor, you're naked. They thought that they were in a good state. But they weren't. They were impoverished. So what we're seeing here is from the Lord's perspective. The Lord is the true, the faithful witness. We often give a wrong assessment of ourselves. But here again tonight, the Lord's assessment is always true. So we're at the end of this first cycle now. And again, the order is the same. Remember what we said? Begins with Ephesus in chapter 1, verse 11. It's the same order that we're following right through all of these letters to the churches. And we come now to the last, the church at Laodicea. And seven times to each of those churches, he says, what does he say? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And again, I say it's not just to the church there at Laodicea, but it's to us, all churches, throughout all ages. We must not somehow divorce ourselves from these letters. They may apply to us even in our own individual Christian state. How are we walking with the Lord? Well, may the Lord, by his Spirit, speak to our hearts here this evening. Now, firstly, we continue on. As we know, the structure is the same concerning the other churches. And we see, first of all, the address to the church here at Laodicea and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write. Now again, he's not writing to a literal heavenly being. He's writing to one of the stars. We're told in Revelation 1.20, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches. Now here is the minister, as we've said. I, I trust I don't need to cover that ground again. But the minister here, the pastor, has to take a very solemn letter to this church, the church at Laodicea. To put it mildly, Things are not good. Things are not good at all. Now, secondly, we notice here how the Lord uses 
one of his distinct titles that he's already used in chapter 1. But he applies it now to the church at Laodicea. And we'll consider why. It's very apt, it's very apposite that he uses this title. And unto the, verse 14, it's tailored to them. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Notice, first of all, there, he says, these things saith the Amen. That word, Amen, literally means the verily. The one who who says it, and what he says is verily, verily. Remember how many times the Lord said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The one whose word is verity, the one whose word is true, the one who cannot lie. Verily, verily, amen and amen. May it be, literally, may it be so. This is the one who does not communicate error. Now, he says here, and it's very important, as we look at this self-designation, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness. What is a witness? Somebody that can bear testimony. Here is one, let me remind you, that has eyes as a flame of fire, that can see through pretense, burns through, should we say, any form of duplicity. He can see right through the hypocrite. He knows everything about us. There's no way we can disguise ourselves before him. He is the true witness. This church, they say they're rich. They say they're clothed. They say they have much. But the Lord says you have nothing. You're poor. You're naked. You're blind. You have none of these things. You're wretched. And the beginning of the creation of God. It's not that he was ever created. Of course, it's not saying that this is the very one. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we're told in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. But we're told that all things were made by him and for him. Without him, nothing that was made was made. He has made all things. And he is going to bring in a new heavens and a new earth. And those who are his, truly his, we may be lukewarm at times, but we're not going to be lukewarm for long. He will chasten, as he says to them here, as many as I love, I chasten. Who does he chasten? He chastens his children. And if they are a new creation, and Christ being head over all, as we have sung, and Lord over all, head of his church, if he has begun a good work in his people, although they may sadly at times become lukewarm, they will not stay in that state. They may at times be lukewarm. Remember what he says here as we read, Thou art neither cold 
nor hot. Cold might suggest a dead corpse. If you touch a dead body, it's cold, isn't it? There's no life. And so it is, we could even say, with somebody that is not regenerate. An unregenerate person would be cold. But they're neither cold nor hot. They're alive, but as it were, only just lukewarm. This is a sad state. And this is his assessment of the church. The true witness who does not lie, who says it like it is. And sometimes the truth does hurt, doesn't it? But he says, but he that overcometh, he that overcometh, and they will. If we are a new creature in Christ, we will overcome. And now I must remind you, this is to a church. Many use this letter here as an evangelistic text. And I would say that's wholly wrong. The the hermeneutic is, is totally off beam and skewed. We are not to view this as an evangelistic text. Here is a a, a true minister, but they are not having close fellowship with Christ. He says, I stand at the door and knock. And he says, I will come and sup. When you sup, you have fellowship. And maybe this is what is lacking, certainly. A closeness to Christ in this church. Fellowship with Christ. We think of the great time when we will sit down with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we will enjoy fellowship with God forever. God will tabernacle with us forever and forever. What a day that's going to be. Now, we move straight on. There's no uh, commendation here to this church. That we can say about this church. That's one thing that is true. Now, what do we know about this church? I suppose there was a time that it could be commended. If you turn with me to Colossians chapter 4, and you notice in the verse 15, what do we know about this church here at Laodicea? Well, there's a a little bit of information in Colossians 4 and uh, verse 15. Paul, he's concluding the letter to the Colossians, and um, you notice in the verse 15, He says to the church at Colossae there, he says, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nyphimus, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And it's quite possible now this is the same church. But when was that? There in Colossians, we know that Paul, he was in writing from Rome. So perhaps some 35, 36 years have passed now. The time now, somewhere around 95 AD. A good three decades, three and a half decades have passed. Well, we notice here this man, Nyphimas, was somebody who had the church in his home. Church obviously started off small, perhaps, Either he's the minister or one of the leaders. But the church there seemed to be no difficulties, no problems. The, the church at Colossae, that letter there, was to be read to them. And the teaching is that Christ is the head of the church. 
And uh, certainly no admonition to the church in those days. There's nothing we can tell. But time has moved on. Those years are past. They have grown. Perhaps numerically. But they've not sort of grown in their heat for the Lord. In fact, it seems that they've grown cold. Or colder, we could say. There are degrees, aren't there? The fervency. You know, you, you don't just all of a sudden, as a Christian, become cold or w- lukewarm. It's over time. Things slip. We let things slip. And we're not fervent. And on fire for the Lord, the, the fire is slowly dying down. And it seems to have happened. The church has come to this very lax state. This time has moved on. Now we come, therefore, straight to the Lord's Condemnation, the verse 15 to the verse 17. The Lord says, I know thy works. Again, it's the same word, Edo, which means an intimate knowledge. It's not the word gnosis, but an intimate knowledge. I know thy works. Well, there are works there, but there's nothing really outstanding to commend. The Lord rather gets straight to the problem. Problem is this, and it's a real problem. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, some people say, well, hold on a minute. Surely it's better to be warm than cold. Well, Cold might suggest somebody that's not regenerate. So you have to be very careful there. It would suggest that there's no life in them at all if they were absolutely stone cold. You know, like the unsaved. You, you speak to them about the word of God and there's, there's, no, there's no response. It's like a dead man. Apathy. We have that, do we not? When we go out in the open air, there's an apathy. These people are dead. They're walking corpses, as it were. Well, that's the lost man. But here, the problem is not... The problem is they're lukewarm. They're alive. Whereas they should be on fire. Now, think about it. If we know the things of God, if God has given us the new birth, and if we're born again, shouldn't we be on fire? You see, it's dishonoring. It's nauseating to God that we're ever lukewarm. It should never be that a Christian is lukewarm. It should never be. We should always be taken up with the thrill of knowing God. Not only knowing that we're saved, but you know, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Just to know that you know the truth. And you were once like me in utter darkness. I mean, that in itself, does that not just thrill your soul to know that you do not belong to one of these pagan religions of nonsense, but we know the truth. And you see, it's nauseating here. And here's the picture. This is detestable to Christ. 
It almost makes him feel sick. How can you know me and be lukewarm? It seems bizarre, doesn't it? It seems a worse case than even somebody that is, is dead and cold. Because you wouldn't expect this from a Christian. You would expect us to love God with a fervent heat. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. It's that first love, isn't it? You see, it's dishonoring for a Christian to be lukewarm, isn't it? It's not right. It just doesn't seem right. It's in fact here nauseating to the Lord. Now, these things would be, and what he has to say here, Laodicea was known for four things, and we'll consider that one of them was hot springs. Just like the city of Bath, you know, the city of Bath down in the south of the country. The Romans had their hot baths still going today. It was well known for it. It was also a very rich city. And here he speaks about gold. It was also a city that was notorious and very well known for its textile industry, particularly for black wool. And also, it was a place of medicine and they produced I salve there. And these things are very opposite. These people are blind to their own state. The springs there in Laodicea were hot. It was a wealthy place. It was a place of opulence. Back in the days of Bath, down in the south of the country, it was the place for the rich and famous to go to those baths, you know, and Luxury hotels there. Now the sense is this. That all this opulence and this, and by the way, another thing it was famous for was its merchant banking. Laodicea was very well known for its banking. And you can see how this all fits together and how the Lord addresses them from this vantage point. They thought that they were well off, but spiritually they were bankrupt. They weren't laying up treasures in heaven, as the Lord Jesus said. Lay up for yourselves, not here treasures on earth, but in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, nor thieves break in and enter in. But they were spending and being spent for this world. And they were blind to their own state. Verse 17. You see, their self-assessment was wrong. And here is the one who is the faithful witness. He says, I have always been true. I am the Amen, and I am the faithful witness. They thought they were rich, because thou sayest, verse 17, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. But you notice now, they were spiritually destitute before God, and knowest not that thou art wretched. That is, they, they are shameful, because there's no spiritual riches. They're not honoring God, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. 
I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. It's interesting here he speaks about the white raiment, but remember what I said. This city was famous for its black wool and its textile industry, and it prided itself. What is the white raiment here picture? Righteous living. We're not tainted with this world. We read how the saints daily wash their garments in the blood of the Lamb. It's to be sanctified. They are a very worldly church. They say we're rich in terms of the world's goods, but the Lord looks at them. He says, it's, it's not what you think it is. You are poor before God. Again, these hot springs. I mentioned the city in Bath. Famous for it. You can imagine the Romans prided themselves on wealth, indulged themselves in all kinds of things. We are, you can see almost, can't you, today, the church today. Look at it. We have never, dear friends, in the history of this world, had so much possessions as we do today. The world, there's so much. Banking was famous there and well-known. And uh, as I mentioned, the eye salve here, known as the Phrygian powder, an interesting fact I read concerning the city here of Laodicea. During the first century AD, Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake in AD 60. And according to a Roman writer, Tacticus, Rome offered to pay for the city to be rebuilt. But the people actually declined and said, we're wealthy enough to restore our own city. That's just pride, isn't it? But that can be the case so often. You know, concerning us spiritually. Say, Lord, I can do it. We can't live the Christian life without the Lord, can we? We need his help. Trusting in riches and wealth makes us very proud and conceited. We need the Lord. So you notice now the Lord's exhortation and warning. Verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. Again, I said banking, commerce was well known for that. But the Lord says, you need to buy from me. Of course, the Lord gives. Isaiah 55, we're told, Oh, come to the waters. Are we not told, come buy without money, without price? Of course, everything is from the Lord. What does that mean, come buy from me? That is, invest yourself in the Lord. You put your soul into the Christian life. You walk with God. You, you spend and be spent for the sake of God. And what he gives is gold. And notice here, it's tried in the fire. What God gives is always good. When we think of gold tried in the fire, 
It's in his crucible. And it's pure. What God gives is always good. The life that is truly consecrated to God, my friends, is a pure life. It's for him, isn't it? Whatever we do is for God, and it's for his glory, and it will last. Remember what the Lord Jesus said, lay up not for yourselves treasures on earth, but in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. What is he saying? He's saying, stop living for this world. That's what he's saying. He says, stop saying you're rich. You're actually spiritually impoverished before God. Your life can be taken away from you now. And what will you have? Remember the words there to the rich farmer. He said, take ease, my soul. Thou hast many years. And the Lord said, thou fool. Now, there was a lost man. But you know, sometimes Christians can live, sadly, as lost people. And we can become very cold. We know, don't we, if you just turn with me there to Matthew chapter 24. I mentioned to you, what is it going to be like in the last days before the Lord Jesus Christ comes? Well, we're told. Matthew 24. And... uh, Verse 11. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity, what is iniquity? Lawlessness. It's the word anomia. And it's basically to live for yourself, not to live for God. That's what sin is. It's living your own way, your own standards. And because iniquity shall abound. That word abound means to increase exponentially as time goes on. It's like that curved graph. It gets worse and worse. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, why does he say love? Well, because love is the moral essence and directive of the law. To love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Christian life. Many will not have a life lived to God in that way, living for God, glorifying God, the love of many. That is the professing many in the church. Those who profess to know Jesus Christ What you will see as the world spirals, as it were, into a black hole of iniquity. As iniquity comes over us as a vapor, as a canopy. It permeates, it begins to permeate into the church. And what does it do? You find worldliness in the church. And the love of the many shall wax cold. But he that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. And then we're told, and the gospel shall be preached in all the world, and then shall the end come. These are the signs of the end of the age. Worldliness, a great abundance of wealth and things and stuff in this world. And if we're not careful, 
will make our love wax cold. You see the lukewarmness slowly creeping in. And it's a warning. And the Lord says, come buy of me real stuff that lasts. Gold tried in the fire. In other words, this gold that I give will stand the test of time. We know from the parable of the talents, the Lord gives five, the Lord gives two. He gives the talents. And to whom those are faithful with those talents and they invest those things wisely and they use them for the Lord, the Lord is pleased to give more. And they are the ones laying up treasure in heaven, not on earth. Those are those who are fervent for the Lord. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold. And then notice, remember what I said, they they prided themselves on their black wool and clothing manufacture, fashion, textiles. It was famed for its black wool. But the Lord says here, Come and buy of me white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. You clothe yourself with the world and the world's goods. But what about spiritual clothing? What about these things that last forever? What about being clothed with righteousness? Of course, as Christians, we have the righteousness of Christ. But you know, the Christian does have, as it were, works of righteousness. Not that we are ever saved by them, but it is a righteousness worked out. There is the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us, but there are works of righteousness worked out in the life. The Lord said, did he not? A tree is known by its fruit. And you bear fruits, meat, repentance. There will, be work, there will be righteousness. We're not saved by them. Far from it. The Lord gives it. That thou mayest be clothed. He's not talking about here salvation. And I must remind you because he says he chastens those whom he loves. And those whom he loves are saved. This must never be used as an evangelistic text. It's not an evangelistic text. But it's true. Sometimes Christians can be rather shabby. You know, we're very poor in terms of our deeds. This is not righteousness before God. This is not an unsaved person. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. He says, I counsel thee. Well, this is speaking about holiness. Holiness in the life. This is what he's speaking about. This has to do with righteous living. Not sin. Not worldliness. You look warm, he says. As you walk godly, you're on fire for the Lord. And you're doing works for the Lord. And you're serving him. Nakedness 
Really, he's picturing shame, the nakedness of sin. Don't be clothed with that. Have works of righteousness in your life. Remember what he said, accept your righteousness, exceed that of the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's there not talking about salvation, he's not talking about having the righteousness of Christ. We must understand we are only made righteous in the righteousness of Christ. But friends, if there's no righteousness in the life, we have no right to say that we have the righteousness of Christ. In the life, there has to be righteousness because it's proof that we've been changed on the inside. If you're changed on the inside, you'll be changed on the outside, surely. A work for the Lord. And notice, and anoint thine eyes with thyself. They have got to such a state where he, Christ, the true witness, has to tell them, you need your eyes fixing. You need this eye self that thou mayest notice, see. They've got to such a state where they're comfortable. And, you know, we can be today. The churches can be full. A church can be full and everybody is sitting in self-satisfaction. All is well. But all is not well. In the city of Laodicea was that famous medicine Colossia, that I self. But he says, what you need is to come to me that you might see more clearly your spiritual state. You're living in a place of advancement. And, you know, this is the trouble even today with the modern church. The modern church says, oh, look at the world, we're advanced. And it takes pride in advancements and money and possessions. But we can be so blind to the things that really are important to Christ. And we can be blind to ourselves. So the things mentioned here, gold, riches, wealth, the need for sight. Well, these things are important. Now notice there's a word of encouragement. Lest they be discouraged. Notice, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore. In other words, he loves them. These are his people. We mustn't think that these are unsaved people. It's not what the text teaches. He loves them, therefore he chastens them. Hebrews 12 verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Remember Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. God has chosen a people out of this world, but by the way, they're not perfect. By the way, sometimes they'll be so blind to themselves and their sin. But thank God he chastens his children. And we're kept by the warnings, aren't we? For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Hebrews 12, 6. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. 
For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof ye are all partakers, ye are then bastards or illegitimate, and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? You see, the Holy Spirit comes and he chastens us. And maybe we feel chastened this evening. Well, there are two things we tend to do when we are chastened. Two tendencies. One is, Paul says, despise not the chastening of the Lord. We might consider it a light thing, but it's a wonderful thing when the Lord chastens us. It's proof that he loves us. Isn't it? He says that. Proverbs 3 verse 11, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. We can become also so weary and downcast. Well, the Lord's chastening me again. Woe is me. But Christ says, look to me. Don't say, woe is me. Look to me. I will help thee. I will strengthen thee. Pray against worldliness. Tell him you're worldly. Tell him your need of him. Tell him all your sin. Confess it. Now we move to the warning. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and I will sup with him and he with me. Now, commentators, again, I say are quite divided over some of these verses. Some take this to be an evangelistic text, but I don't see that at all because the Lord chastening here is chastening these people. Now, what is the sense? There has not been this intimate fellowship with the Lord. He says, I will come in and will sup with him. Do you remember how the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, how they were downcast? And the Lord drew alongside. That was after his resurrection, on that resurrection morning. And the Lord opened up the scriptures to them. He began at Moses and then the law the prophets, and expounded the things concerning himself and how their hearts were warmed. And what has happened? I mean, we have to ask the question, how do we get to a low state spiritually as Christians? It's sadly when we neglect our fellowship, our communion, our prayer, the reading of the word. It's sadly when we neglect those things. What are we doing? We are neglecting our fellowship with Christ. Aren't we? That's where it begins. And then we, it's almost as if Christ is out the door. He's out the door of, I suppose, the church, not the church itself, but you can be an individual. But the Lord is saying, I knock. This is not open your heart to Jesus, my friends. This is not Armenian doctrine, you know, where um, somehow God knocks and you have to give God permission to enter your heart. It's, it's not the teaching here. The teaching is this. The person has become cold. 
And what we have been lacking is fellowship and joy with the Lord, sitting down with him. After all, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be sitting with him in heaven forever. And we will be, as it were, it is going to be one endless marriage supper of the Lamb. Fellowship with God. This is what's needed, isn't it? It's what's needed in the Christian life. Well, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Maybe that's you tonight. You feel lukewarm. It's not good, is it? If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. What we need is that close communion. What we need is Christ. Now again, notice here, he stands at the door. This may well be, as some suggest, the state of the church right up until the end. Very lukewarm. You with this abundance of things that we have. Wealth, medicine, as they had. What need have we of God? We have every need of him. We have every need of Christ, don't we? We need him. He's the food for the soul. He's the life giver. He gave us life. He is the beginning. He has created all things. He's going to bring this world to a great climactic end soon. And all the stuff we have and all the money and all the wealth, it's all going to go. You can't keep your health. It's all going to pass. What did he say in the church at Philadelphia? He says, behold, I come quickly, suddenly. But now he says, I stand at the door. And it could well also, you see, the implications could also be, this is how it's going to be, at the end of time. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? How will he find you? The love of the many, we're told, shall wax cold. But notice the promise, lastly, of everlasting blessing if the exhortation is obeyed. Verse 21. To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. You see, again, it's sitting down with Christ. This is fellowship. That's what he's getting at. You're not only going to, if you enjoy fellowship with me, you're going to, Sit on my throne with me. Now notice, this is sweet. Even as I also overcame. Isn't that wonderful? Remember, as we pass through this world, one has passed before us and has passed into the heavens. He overcame Now, of course, he had no latent sin. But there were temptations. The devil was there tempting him. He was never tempted within. But he was tempted. Outwardly, the devil came. And what does James say? Resist the devil and he will flee. But how do you resist the devil? John says, he that is in you is stronger than he that is in the world. If Christ be in you, Paul says, the body is dead. That is, sin 
Paul says, shall not have dominion over you. It'll not reign. That's what he means. It'll be there, but you will overcome. You will, by the grace of God and by the grace of his spirit, you will overcome. Why? He says, because I also overcame. You see, because he overcame, and if he is in you, you will overcome. That's why Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. All things. And where is he? And am sat down with my father in his throne. And he says, you'll be there too. That's what he says here. The one that overcomes will sit with me. You pass through this world, you find it difficult. All the snares, all the temptations, all the worldliness, everything. Or you can have things, but don't let them have you. It's important, isn't it? We have to overcome. We have to, Christ has to have the preeminence. It's interesting, that letter to the church at Colossians, to to the Colossians, Paul said, pass it on to the Laodiceans. You know what's in that letter? Christ must have the preeminence. Christ is the head. Christ is the head of the body. And you see, Christ is the head of the bride. Christ must be your head. Christ must be the first in your life. In everything, look for an opportunity to serve Christ. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What have we done for him of late? What have we done for the kingdom of heaven? What are we doing? Are we planning more for this world or for the life to come? Friends, let's plan for the life to come. Of course, we don't even know what is on the morrow. Let's let, let us labor for eternity. Time is short. The day is at hand. I am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear. God's given you an ear, friends. If you're saved, you're alive. They look warm. They're not cold. They're not dead. They're not spiritual corpses. But they can hear. And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. There's a hymn we've sung often. We don't have it in our gospel hymns. But that one of Charles Wesley. Oh, thou who camest from above, the fire celestial to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. There let it for thy glory burn with inextinguishable blaze and trembling to its source return in humble prayer and fervent praise. It's interesting, isn't it? We come back even to the church at Ephesus. Maybe what it is, we need to return 
to our first love, Christ. That's what we need. We need Christ. We need fellowship with him. We need to go every day in our mind's eye to Calvary. And we need to see his love, don't we? Because it is from his love that our love is fed. That our faith increases as we look to him. As we see all that he has done. How can we be lukewarm if we are Christ's? I don't think really you can be lukewarm for very long. And when we are, he says, you know what? I chasten them whom I love. And if he's chastening us tonight, let us hear. And let us be doers of his word. Let us seek his counsel. Buy from him. All that he gives and all that he has wrought for us. And may we truly know the riches and the joy of serving Christ. You know, when Jacob met with his brother Esau, he said, I have all things. All things. God had blessed him. Has God not blessed us in Jesus Christ? Yes, he has. And he will bless us as we draw near to him. And as the days roll on, we'll sit with him soon in the new heaven and the new earth. Let us, by the grace of God, overcome this world and all temptations for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.